Welcome to the Imagination in Education podcast, produced by a team of teachers and students at LC Press. Our Liverpool-based homemade podcast is food for thought for educators, for students, and for anyone who is interested in using their imagination to make schools places of joy, discovery, and the development of human potential. Please visit www.lcpress.org.uk to learn more about us and our show. The opinions expressed on the podcast are those of our guests and presenters only. Enjoy the show and keep using your imagination. And today on the podcast, we're very honored to have with us Miss Kim Johnson, MP for Liverpool Riverside. Miss Johnson is our local MP. She's been very active already in the field of education. We've asked her to come on the podcast because she can't visit the school, obviously, at the moment, uh, although I think she would very much like to be able to share uh, her experiences in politics, in her job, and, and her vision for, for Liverpool and for the constituency. So, Mr. Johnson, thank you very much for joining us. We always begin these podcasts by asking our guests, because it's a podcast about school and about imagination in schools, to tell us a little bit about their own experience of school. Can you tell us a little bit about your school, your time in school, what you enjoyed there? So what I'd say about my early years in school, I really enjoyed being in school. I went to school in my constituency and I lived literally around the, around the corner from where I went to school. I went to St. Margaret's of Antioch, which is just off um, Princess Road. And I enjoyed it. I loved being in school. And I think my primary school years was very much, you know, because I'm nearly 60. So, you know, my memory is a bit faded. So it's about having fun and being with my friends. The school that I went to would be classified as being, you know, very diverse, very ethnically diverse. We had lots of kids from right across the world. And so for me, that became the norm. That was my lived experience. And I really enjoy that, you know, find out about other kids, you know, different types of food. And then when I went to my secondary school, it was a bit different. You know, I was one of um, a few black girls. And so... It kind of, it was like a a very steep learning curve, but I always enjoyed learning, you know, and I loved being in school and finding out about things. And um, in secondary school, I loved English and I had a great teacher, Miss Anderson, who came to our school kind of late because we've been without a permanent English teacher for a long time. And she was very inspiring. You know, she was kind of uh, informed us what books to read, you know, outside of school. And she was just you know, a very inspirational teacher. And then I left my secondary. It was an all-girls secondary modern school at the time. It would be true to say that a lot of the teachers in the school didn't have a lot of aspiration for the girls in the school. It's really working class area. You know, um, a lot of the teachers expected us to go and work in a local factory, a shop. There was, you know, um, a laundry not far from where the school was located and um, so not, not a lot of aspiration, but I left that school and I went to New Hayes, which was, you know, a couple of miles down the road to do O&A levels. And again, that was a, another learning curve for me because, again, I was the only black pupil in the school. But I had a teacher, Mr. Hurley, who was a sociology teacher, and I loved learning about sociology and how societies form. So that was a great eye-opener for me. 
So, yeah, I love school. I love being in school. And I suppose what gave us um, my thirst for knowledge and learning, which has stayed with me all of my life. I've done lots of academic courses and vocational courses right throughout my life, you know. So every day's a learning day is what I say. That's right. We keep learning. Did you get a lot of support? You were obviously enjoying school and, and ambitious in school in the sense that you kept on going with it. You, you kept wanting to learn more. Did your parents or your, your family or your community really support you in that? Or did you have to drive that more yourself? I think it was um, half and half, you know, because as a black person um, living in Liverpool, it was always uh, enforced upon me that I would have to work harder than, you know, my counterpart if I was to achieve. So I was pushed. You know, my mum and dad weren't very academic, but they understood the benefit of education and learning. So they pushed. But I was also very keen on doing that for myself as well, you know, and um, I wouldn't say I was the brightest of people, but I enjoyed it and wanted to do it and saw it as a means to an end. That's a, it's, it's a fantastic story. Look where you are now. I'm, I'm looking at you in the Zoom call. You're in the Houses of Parliament. Uh, something went very right there. When you look back, you mentioned already that you found yourself in a school where perhaps the ambition for you and for all the pupils was not as great as it should have been. If, if you take the totality of the schools you attended, what do you think they did particularly well? And what do you think they could have done better? Not only for you, but just reflecting back and, and thinking back to the school and its culture. I think, you know, for me, Hans, um, I think what schools tend to do is take away a certain amount of individuality. You know, you go to school and it's about that conformity and all behaving and acting in a certain way. And I think if you have an opinion and you want to voice that opinion sometimes in school, it's seen as being maybe disruptive. And, and I think in terms of where we are today, I think providing opportunities for young people to think for themselves, to develop opinions for themselves is very important. And I think a lot of that does exist in some private schools, you know, debate and society, those kind of things where people have the opportunities to think, debate and have discussions about important subject matters is really important. But I think all too often within our educational system at the moment, and I understand the difficulties that teachers have trying to contain um, a classroom of 30 pupils is very difficult, you know, and, and I know that um, in this country, class sizes are so much bigger than other parts of Europe, you know. So I think providing those opportunities for um, young people, I think is really important, you know, giving them the opportunity to think and develop opinions instead of being sheep-like. Did you get to use your imagination in school? Did, did they encourage, I mean, this is sort of following up from, from what you were hinting at. Did you have places where you could really, you felt like you could dream, you could contribute something, or was it a bit rigid? I would have to say, well, you because know, I am nearly 60, so my learning goes back a long way, really, you know, and it was very much focused at that time on the three R's and kind of, you know, being very rigid and, and doing certain things in a certain way. So school didn't provide the opportunity, but I think what did, you know, because I mentioned about English 
you know, and losing myself and books and stuff was really important. And and I suppose I'd always been quite creative. I danced, I put on shows as a child and then during the summer holidays, my friends and I would get together and we put on shows in each other's backyards and stuff, you know, and pay, you know, charge kids to come in and see us perform. So I think having uh, an imagination wasn't encouraged in schools. And I mentioned that the school that I went to, my secondary school, didn't really have great aspirations for the girls that went there. I think it was, you know, very stifled to a certain extent. Did you develop career plans in school, even if the school didn't encourage it? Were you at school thinking, you know what, I might try that or I'd I'd sure love to do that or that would be a great thing to do? Well, I did. And I think because I left my secondary school, because at the time, you know, we only did what were called CSEs at that point. And so I had to go to another school to do O&A levels. And so I had my own personal aspirations in terms of wanting more out of the education system. And um, so I did go to the school down the road, New Hayes, to do O&A levels. And I think when I was at school, I kind of toyed with the idea, of, I don't ask me to be a psychologist. And at that time, I probably didn't know much about what a psychologist was. And there was like, oh, I, I fancy being an air stewardess. So I didn't have very strong formulated ideas about what I wanted to do. I kind of meandered into certain work because... Um, when I was at in New Hayes, I got involved in doing voluntary youth work. And that kind of inspired me to um, become qualified as a youth and community worker. And as a result of that, I worked as a community development worker in and around um, Liverpool and Merseyside. And that kind of took me into other aspects of work as well. I worked for um, the Government Office Northwest in terms of developing Shorestar programmes in Manchester, Greater Manchester. So I meandered. I started in one place and then kind of took me to other opportunities, which was, you know... And eventually to Parliament. Let's take a little break for some music and we'll be back uh, with the Honourable Kim Johnson, MP for Liverpool Riverside on the podcast. Today's musical item is Summer by Paul Reed. Previously recorded by Year 13 pupil Daniel from Brooks House as part of his GCSE music performance. We hope you enjoy.
We're back with uh, Kim Johnson, MP for Liverpool Riverside, the local constituency MP. Very honoured that she took time to talk to the podcast. Tell us how you became an MP. You've told us about this fantastically varied career. You're obviously involved with people, with education. But, you know, if if I have a kid at school who says, sir, that's what I want to be, how did you do it? When did you realise you wanted to be one? Well, interestingly, Hans, you know, it wasn't on my bucket list, if I'm totally honest with you. You know, and as I just said about meandering, I think, you know, it came about as a result of a series of unintended consequences, I'd say. So I worked in the council. I was active in the trade union movement, both as um, a workplace rep and in regional and national elements of the union. So I was the deputy chair of regional black members and the deputy chair of the National Black Members Committee. A couple of years ago, I, and although I'd been a member of the Labour Party, I became more active in my local Labour Party um, about two or so years ago. And it was from there I got active and involved in the party. And then the sitting MP resigned and then a general election was called. And, and I think because of the things I'd been involved in in the past in the union and in the party, I was just asked in September of last year whether I would be interested in considering standing for MP. And it'd be true to say that at that time, I had no political aspirations. You know, I was very involved in campaigning for change in terms of community development and those kind of things. And within the union, but I, it'd be true to say, I didn't have any political aspirations at that time. And so I um, was then on a a very steep learning curve from the September to submit an application in the October to have an an interview and then being confirmed as the candidate for Liverpool Riverside just before the election. So I had six weeks from the nomination to the election. So it was a very steep learning curve, let me tell you. I imagine it would be. Now, you must have been attracted to it in part because what you wanted to do as an MP. Obviously, you hope to be part of a party that would be in government. Uh, the Labour yeah. Party, the Labour Party mm-hmm. is not. But what do you hope to achieve as an MP for your constituents wider in the country? I suppose, you know, being a community development worker, being active in the union, I suppose I'd always strive for social justice you know, and levelling up the playing field. You know, Liverpool has suffered over the last 10 years from really austere um, austerity measures. The government has reduced our revenue funding by 63%, equating to £450 million, which has a massive impact on the city. My constituency has some of the poorest wards in the country, and compared to some affluent water. And what I really want to see is that everybody has the same opportunities in terms of employment and training um, and education. You know, we have massive um, health inequalities in the city and we're on the brink of a major financial crisis. You know, we're going to uh, look at, you know, a lost generation to a certain extent, young people who've been on apprenticeship schemes have collapsed because of funding crises and furlough. And I think worse is yet to come in terms of a massive hike in unemployment. 
you know and what i want to see happen is that the working class aren't the ones that bear the brunt of this again because unfortunately the last 10 years that's what's happened in terms of universal credit and bedroom tax and a tax on welfare benefits this tory government came in talking about wanting to level up and i think actions speak loud in the words and if we're going to do that we need the funding and the resources to provide those opportunities for everybody we still have sadly young people children leaving school unable to read and write in the city and failing to access opportunities that other kids have you know in terms of having access to musical instruments or doing languages or access to playing fields and sporting activities. Some kids do and some kids don't, but I want everybody to have access to the same opportunities. Going forward, their life chances are improved, you know, and I know it's a big ask, but as a socialist MP, that's what I strive for and that's what I'll be um, working towards the, my four or five years that I'll have in office. Well, hopefully a little longer than that. Come on now. We can't, uh, yeah. you can't, you, I, I, th- can't, I think yeah. the seat is relatively safe. But anyway, this is a very, uh, it's very timely to have you on the podcast in many ways, yeah. because our school, like many other schools, is responding to thinking about, discussing, reflecting on the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, some of our mm-hmm. students are involved, our staff. And just as a context, of course, we're very proud that you're the first Black MP from Liverpool. But what was it like to grow up as a Black girl in Liverpool? I mentioned that uh, my early life growing up in Liverpool, eight and going to St. Margaret's, you know, was panacea because um, with, you know, a very diverse group of other pupils. That was my reality. But then leaving that school and travelling literally a mile down the road to my secondary school of Lawrence Secondary School for Girls um, was in very sharp contrast. And I suppose what I found growing up in the city is that I'll go to various places, you know, when I've been um, a student or when I've been in the work environment and being the one of the only black person in a lot of environments, you know, and we are, I have the oldest black community across Europe and Liverpool. And sadly, black people are still very invisible in the city. You know, if you go to the city centre, black people aren't working in shops. A lot of our public sector organisations aren't recruiting and retaining black staff that represents the community in which it serves. So there's been and long established, in my view, deeply entrenched institutional racism that needs to be challenged and, and needs to be dealt with, you know, and I think now is kind of provided that kind of perfect storm to start challenging a lot of the race equality is on the agenda because of Black Lives Matter and because of this disproportionate impact that the coronavirus has had on black people. And so for me, growing up as a teenager, you know, I went on lots of demonstrations, anti-fascist, anti-racist demonstrations. I used to work in the Dingle the National Front used to recruit pupils outside Shawfield School. There was a major dividing line in Liverpool Lake between, you know, Liverpool Ace and the Dingle. There used to be pitched battles between Black News and um, National Front News. And so that happened when I was a teenager in the 70s, 80s in Liverpool. And I'd have to say that from my point of view, 
things haven't improved for black people in this city. In fact, I would have to say that things have gone backwards. But, you know, when that's, you know, also to say that there's been lots of fantastic organisations in the city, in my constituency, that have fought against that, you know. But experiencing racism has been the norm for me as a black person in the city. What do you think schools... I mean, I think it's fair to say that most studies and most people who have experienced racism or have spoken to me about it say at least some part of it is always ignorance. Ignorance is Mm -hmm. a major, major factor, uh, Uh as well as the institutional factors that you described. What do you think schools can do or should do? What role can they play in making sure that we have an anti-racist society, a society where that is not tolerated or institutionalized? What I'd say is that um, no one's born racist becomes a learned behavior over time, whether that's families, peer groups, the media. And I think in terms of social media and the way that people access information these days can be very skewed. And there's been a lot of debate during Black Lives Matter about statues and road names you know and it's about providing a broad context of education you know and positive aspects of education and contributions from people other than you know um, white scientists I don't think history um, being taught in schools has changed any since I was in school you know what I learned as a black kid in school about you know history was the empire the transatlantic slave trade So I think schools have a role to play in terms of looking at their curriculum, how history is taught, looking at English and the types of books young people have access to, providing young people an opportunity to find out about, you know, the empire, what the empire did wasn't all positive, you know, as we've learned recently. Uh, Winston Churchill's deemed a hero, but he was also, you know, complicit in some atrocious things during his lifetime. So it's providing those opportunities and having, as I mentioned before, opportunities to have discussions and debates about life and society. You know, you look at the media and I think people have this perception about what Africa is. We see starving, emaciated kids on the screen. So that's people's perceptions of Africa when, you know, that isn't it. You know, we have societies and countries that have high rise and people think, you know, they still have mud huts. So it's about changing the narrative, providing those opportunities. But I think schools also have a role to play in terms of recruitment of diverse teachers and providing role models in school. Because sadly, in Liverpool, the numbers of black teachers in schools in our city is dire. And we need to be asking, why is that? My kids have friends who are teachers. They have to leave the city to go and get teaching opportunities outside of Liverpool. So those kind of things need to be considered as well. Recruitment and retention of staff, you know, providing opportunities for students to do placements in school. So I think there's a number of things that schools can be doing to look at redressing some of these inequalities that currently exist. If you had to give advice (laughs) to your younger self, and in a way you are doing that because Uh a lot of the people listening to this will be young and will be inspired by your story and will recognize themselves or, or hope to recognize themselves in in some of the aspirations you had 
What, what would your advice be to your younger self at school? If, if you could look back now and, and, and talk to Kim Johnson, age 12. And I suppose at 12, I look back at me at 12 and I'd say um, I was probably um, quite a timid person. I'm moving from um, that cocoon from my early school days to my secondary school. I'm kind of finding myself without a voice to a certain extent. And as I got older and become more confident, was finding my voice and being able to challenge things. And so I'd say about being more bolder and more adventurous, because sadly, you know, I didn't do an awful lot of traveling when I was in my formative teenage years after school. And I would have liked to have done more of that. But being bolder, I would say, and finding my voice and in a strength. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, let's thank Kim Johnson, MP, RMP, uh, for taking the time to talk to us. Wish her well in a new job. That story was fantastic. How in six weeks' time you found yourself a candidate and, and shortly thereafter, uh, because of a general election in Parliament, you've given us a lot to reflect on and to think about. And we hope that uh, once this plague passes, as I say, uh, we will be able to welcome you at Liverpool College and uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you very much. We do appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me and having um, this discussion. I do look forward to um, coming and visiting the school and meeting um, the students sooner rather than later. Thank you. We appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast and we thank you for listening. More information and material can be found on www.lcpress.org.uk. If you have an idea for a podcast or would like to contribute to the show, why not email us at editor at lcpress.org.uk. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lcpress and imagination in education. See you next time.